Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 11. If you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, go ahead and turn to Psalm 11. Once again, that's Psalm 11. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. Are you confused that I'm up here again? Me too. Um, I want to actually want to bring some kind of heavy, heavy news. Uh, Chris Gillespie, our executive pastor here, he was scheduled to be preaching today. And on Thursday, he wasn't feeling super well. He went into the hospital. And the short of it is he had a form of heart failure. Um, and so he's still in the hospital right now. He's having a procedure done tomorrow, uh, catheterizing his heart, which is, doesn't sound awesome, right? It seems like super intense. He's okay. He, we're, we're texting with him. He's doing all right. But um, all that being said, you get the most amazing sermon of all time preached today. As a, as a, as a pinch hitter right now, I'm stepping in, and uh, you're probably like, why is there Matthew in the middle and then Psalm 11? Um, that's why, right? Um, and so we're kind of adjusting uh, just with this flow right now, but I'd love just to take time to lift Chris up. Uh, we love him. Uh, we love Adrian. We love Brennan, Graham, and Brooke, and just praying for wisdom for the doctors um, and just that they would, as the procedure happens tomorrow, that they would figure out what's going on with his enlarged heart, why his blood pressure was so high, and come to some good solutions. Does that sound all right? Awesome. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, you are uh, the one who can heal. We say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on Chris. Uh, we, we ask you for mercy right now. Uh, we pray as a united people right now that you'd extend your powerful hand and heal our brother. Would you heal Chris today, would his heart return to its normal size? Would it be beating um, just with a deep health and livelihood? And would you, would you meet Chris and their whole family today? Uh, we pray that you would give wisdom to the doctors, to those attending to Chris. Give them clarity about what's going on and the best route for recovery. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors on, on, uh, on staff at Park Church. Uh, thank you guys for being here. Uh, over the last few months in the mornings, uh, I've been going through the Psalms. And so just one by one, I, start, so I started with Psalm 1 and then tried to pray it. And then I was like, man, I don't even understand exactly what's going on here. So I would take time to read it, 
uh, to study it, and then ultimately to pray it over a few days. And so I've been going through slowly but surely, probably a week at a time, each psalm. And, uh, and each time, uh, I'm kind of met by the same rhythms. Uh, it's a little bit confusing to try to pr- pray it right away. I'm like, okay, what's this thing saying? What do these words mean? And then ultimately over time, I'm met in powerful ways that typically these psalms give wings to my prayers. They teach me things about God, about myself, things that I want to pray to God that I didn't maybe even know that I needed to pray or perhaps at times needed to pray but didn't have the exact way to do it. And so um, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 11. And uh, it was very similar when I read Psalm 11. So if if you heard Ben reading just before uh, I came up here, uh, there's some strange imagery in Psalm 11. So there's this Uh, imagery of a bird flying to a mountain. There's some like assassin hiding in shadows, shooting a bow and arrow. Uh, God's eyelids are testing people. There are coals raining down on the wicked. It's kind of intense imagery. And so when I first read this, I was like, okay, help me pray this psalm, Lord. You have something to teach me about prayer in this psalm. You have something to teach me about who you are, who I am, and how I'm to pray. And so um, over time, as I slowed down, as I took time with it, um, God has used Psalm 11 in my life to be a beautiful companion on my prayer journey with me. It gave me words to pray about that I, that I really needed to pray, and I didn't know how. And so I hope that today uh, God does the same for all of us through Psalm 11. And I call Psalm 11 this, a tale of two voices. Psalm 11 is a tale of two voices. As we see in the superscript up top, it was written by David to the choir master. Um, We're not told the exact situation that he was in, what the background was, although we can infer some things, he was going through a crazy time. And so really what David was trying to give expression in Psalm 11 that I think all of us need to hear today is this, is what do the faithful do when craziness hits? What do the faithful do when crisis comes our way? And I want to tell you this. If you don't think crisis has come for you in your life, don't worry. Just set your timer. It will come. Crisis will come. It comes for all of us. And when it lands, what is our plan of action? I think that's at the heart of what David is trying to get here in Psalm 11. And so this morning, our trajectory is going to be very simple. You guys are pumped because it's going to be a very short sermon. I had a whole day to prepare for for it. So get ready. It's going to be amazing and short. Um, You guys want to go to brunch after? All right. Um, We're going to be looking at at each of these voices. So voice number one and voice number two. We find voice number one in verses one through three, and then voice number two in verses uh, four through seven. And so that's going to be our outline, voice one and voice two, and then maybe a couple uh, things that we can take away and and, uh, take home from this. And so uh, voice one, and this is the voice of flight, the voice of flight. So we find this first voice in verses 1 through 3. And though David affirms God is his refuge, so look at in verse 1 with me. In the Lord I take refuge. So David starts with that, this affirmation. In the Lord I take refuge. But immediately follows up with this. It's a, it's a separate voice. And it says, how can you say to my soul, so a new voice is introduced here. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? Flee like a bird to your mountain. What's going on? Why is he being called or urged to flee like a bird? There's a real enemy that's trying to shoot him from this secret place, from this, from this darkness. And this, this assassin of sorts is shooting a bow and arrow towards him. That would be a freaky thing. If you thought that whenever you stepped outside of your house, and there was somebody that was going to be shooting at you 
with a bow and arrow, would it be like the sweetest thought? No, like you'd be crouching down, you'd be commando crawling your way out. It'd be, it'd be a terrible thing. And we're not sure if this bow and arrow was verbal attack, if it was a physical attack, if it was Saul tracking him down. We're not totally sure. But all we know is there was a real threat in David's life. There was a crisis. And typically when we're confronted with a dangerous situation, with a stressful situation, we respond in kind of the traditional fight, flight, or freeze, right? Fight, flight, or freeze. I don't know what your typical tendency is. Do you stay and fight? Do you run away? Do you try to get as far away as you can? Or you just kind of lock up, right? This voice is encouraging David to fly away like a bird, and it says, to your mountain. It's presenting this as a contrast to the refuge that David started with. So initially, David says, in the Lord I take refuge, but then this voice is urging him to run to a different mountain. It's like, fly like a, way, uh, like a bird away to your mountain. The mountain that this bird is tempted to fly to is, in a sense, a faux refuge. It's the anti-refuge. It's almost as if this voice is saying, fly away, little birdie. Just get as far away from this as you can. I want to ask you this. When trouble comes, not if, but when, where do you go? What is your mountain? If somebody says, fly away to your mountain when trouble comes, what's your heart's most natural inclination? What are the most well-worn paths in your heart when you try to deal with stress or crisis? As I read this psalm, I was trying to think through the mountains that I run to. I was trying to think through the mountains that people here in Denver fly to when trouble hits. And so here were a list of mountains. I think that we might find ourselves on this list of the mountains that we fly to. Mountains of escape. Mountains of distraction. Mountains of social media. I was, I was talking to my, my wife one night, and we were talking about real life things. As I was talking to her, all of a sudden I just jumped on my phone. I was doing something, and my wife was like, what are you doing? I was like, and I got really embarrassed because I did it without even thinking about it. And I was like, oh, I'm on Instagram. She's like, we're literally talking right now. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And again, it was like a natural, almost instinctual mountain of distraction. Even in real life conversation, I'm just like, my mind is running to distractions, trying to escape real things. Mountains of pretending nothing's wrong, attempting to forget about it. Mountains of entertainment, be it the next series on Netflix, binging Squid Game, sports. Mountains of pleasure. We run to alcohol. We might run to drugs, to sex. We run to self-medication. It might be mountains of anxiety, mountains of worry. It might be mountains of resentment, mountains of anger. Maybe we run to a mountain of social isolation. We run uh, to a place where no one can get in and hurt us anymore. We run to a mountain of control. We try to control the situation some of us run to work. We try to just distance ourselves from the reality. It might be a mountain of nostalgia, just going back in our mind to times when, sim when things were simpler, right? If we could just get that back. And I'm not saying this. I'm not saying that all of these mountains are bad things. The problem is this, is that it's when we start running to those mountains instead of running to God. It's when we run to those things first instead of running to God. In a sense, the common denominator behind all of these mountains is that they are alternate refuges instead of running to God. One commentator said this, flight 
might be a form of unbelief which functions as a substitute for trusting in God. I'm going to read that again. Flight might be a form of unbelief which functions as a substitute for trusting in God. In this sense, it's the anti-refuge. It's a shanty refuge. I grew up in, in Brazil, and if you are familiar with Brazil, and particularly the poverty that's down there, they, they have what are, what are called favelas, which in, in English means honeycombs. And there's really tight-knit communities that are built up like often by like cardboard boxes and just kind of trash that's an attempt of providing a structure and form of protection for them from the outside, right? And, and in a sense, these, these mountains that we run to are a bit of the equivalent. If we, if we run back to the, to the um, story of the three little pigs, right? These refuges that we run to, these mountains that we run to, are ultimately these houses of straw and sticks that can't withstand the huffing and puffing of the wolf, right? And, that, and that's really what marks these mountains that we run to. They don't hold up when trouble really comes, and they blow over, and we find ourselves vulnerable and alone. And I want to read verse 3 right here in Psalm 11. It says this, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the place that we place our feet in or on is totally shaken, what hope do we have? If the pillars that hold everything up are crumbling, so it might be, feel like total anarchy, if those things fall, what hope do we have? And that's the first voice of flight. The voice of flight says, you can't do anything. Fly away and protect yourself because nobody's going to look out for you. And this leads us to our second voice. And so let's look at verses uh, 4 through 7. Verse 4 says this, right after this question, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. And so the second voice is the voice of faith. It's not the voice of flight. This voice is the voice of confidence. I'm not using kind of faith when I say this is the voice of faith. I'm not using faith in the way that it's often being thrown around these days. So maybe uh, you've heard faith, just have faith in yourself, right? Uh, it's a form of, you know, Ted Lasso's little sign in the, in the locker room, believe, right? That's great. Like, let's believe, let's have faith. I love Ted Lasso. At the same time, biblical faith is of a different essence. This voice urges us to have faith, not just in faith itself, but in someone. Faith is a faith in someone. That's what biblical faith is. It's namely in God. Not in faith as an abstract, cheerful, or positive mindset, but the object of our faith really matters. Biblical faith is in a person, not just a mindset. We trust in God. We run to God as our sturdy and resilient refuge. I, I want to share a story about faith. And uh, I heard uh, D.A. Carson uh, talked about the story of, of two passengers that walked onto a plane. And one passenger was asked, hey, how confident are you getting from point A to point B. Let's say you're going on a flight from Denver to LA, right? Passenger, you ask passenger number one, hey, how confident are you getting uh, to LA? They're like, pretty good. I mean, like, I think the stats are ever 
in my favor. I feel super strong. I am very confident we will get to LA. Go to the next person, passenger B. They're sweating. They're stressed out of their minds. And they're like, I don't think we're going to make it, but I, but, I, but I hope we do. The flight takes off, lands in LA. Which passenger made it to LA? Both of them. Both of them. Both of them. See, the point of the faith wasn't actually in the faith that they had themselves, but was in the object of their faith, the airplane that was going to get them there and the pilot that was taking them there. And I think sometimes we say, man, unless my faith is at this level, God's not going to look out for me. And at the same time, I think there's this element of saying, God, I'm bringing to you this mustard seed of faith, and I'm trusting you to grow this in me more and more and more. The object of our faith really matters. Does that make sense? All right. I think I want to just highlight three aspects of what David uh, points out to us about God that help us and give us hope in any crisis that we might be walking through. And, and the first thing I want to point out is this, God reigns. God reigns. And we find that in, in verse 4. We just read it. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And so uh, if, we, if we, all we do is focus in on verses 1 through 3, we'll say, man, the wicked are triumphing. They're hiding in the shadows. They're the ones that have the upper hand. Ultimately, they're on the throne, are they not? They're the ones that are causing this righteous person to cower in their homes. And yet, if we stay zoomed in on that reality without doing what David did right here, what David did is ultimately he just kind of takes the zoom lenser and he zooms out a bit more. He says, there's a picture that you're not seeing. I want you to zoom out and see a bigger picture, a different forgotten dimension that you are not seeing here. David is urging us to see a bigger picture. Though this immediate danger is still real, there's a greater reality, and that's this. God rules over all, and his ruling includes over the wicked. God rules over all things. And though the psalmist is hesitant to leave his house because of the arrows flying his way, I want to say this to you today. God is in his holy temple. This word temple is also translated palace. It's this picture of God being the ruler of all. He is on his throne. I love this. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on the psalm, says this. The king is in residence, not in flight. The king is in residence, not in flight. The king isn't biting his nails. He's not crouching around, trying to figure out which way to go. The king is in residence. I want to say to you today, the king is in residence. He's not running away. He's not freaked out. He is on his throne today. And this is good news for all of us. He's not on the run. The wicked aren't on the throne ultimately and finally. God alone rules and reigns. The earth's foundations might be destroyed, but God's throne is on heaven and it is unshakable and indestructible. And I want to say this to us today. Let the transcendence of God, let the holiness of God, the otherness of God and the power of his rule bring great hope to you today in this moment. God reigns over all. Second reality, we see this in verses 4b through 5. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. I want to say this to you today. Not only does God reign, but God sees. God sees. Not only does God rule and reign over all things, but we should be comforted by this reality that God is 
the God who sees. It would be a bummer, would it not be, if God was ruling and reigning in total blindness. If he was ruling and reigning, but he had no eyes to see. If he was indifferent to your cause. But that's not the God, that's not the king that David presents in Psalm 11. God is a God who reigns, but also he is the God who sees. He's not an absent ruler. He's an attentive, active ruler. He might not act in all the ways and the exact fashion that we want him to. He doesn't act according to our timetables. But not only does God see, but we find that part of his seeing is that God both tests and judges. He tests and he judges. He tests the children of men. He tests the righteous. God is testing us. He hasn't peaced out, but he is compassionately and righteously engaged. And I want to mention this just uh, in verse 5, this, this reality that God tests the righteous. We like to overlook this. God tests the righteous. Are you going through a hard time? I think in our Western spirituality, we often mistakenly associate hard times with the absence of God. We associate hard times with the absence of God. If anything wrong is happening, we say, God must be absent and blind and not care. But I think a better, more biblical approach would be to see that in hard times, it's often there that we discover the presence of God. It's in the hard times, in the painful times, in the fiery times that we discover that God is with us. Yes, God is with us at all times. He's here with us in the good times, but he's also with us in those fiery times. So much so in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says this. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness. There's a steadfastness in this person who's being tested. And then verse 4 says this, let, the stead, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want to say this to all of us. Sometimes it's in the crisis moments that we come to terms with our need for God and our reliance on Him. Let difficult moments lead you to Him and to His throne instead of flying to the mountains of distraction that are easier to fly to. God sees, God tests for your good and for his glory. So God reigns, God sees, and then the third and final thing that I want to point out today from this passage, verse 7, God rewards. Let's look at verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. God loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his faith. Face, sorry. When you're going through a hard time, we often think the thing that we need the most is not God's face, but God's hand. We think we need God's hand to act. God, we need your power. Step in, intervene. I want to see your hand. And yet, what does the psalmist promise at the end of this psalm? The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Yes, for sure, we see God's hand acting on behalf of the righteous right before we see God bringing judgment against injustice in the world. And yet, the promise at the end, the reward for the righteous is not the hand of God. It's the face of God. It's the face of God. 
They were going through crisis. David could, all, all he could behold was the arrows of his enemy, but the promise was that ultimately the arrows wouldn't have the last say in his life. He would see not the arrows of his enemies, but the face of his Savior. That was the promise to David, and it's made to us as well. Our reward is ultimately not in the hand of God, but the face of God. Our reward is God's beauty. Our reward is God's grace. Our reward is God's kindness to us in Christ. We saw this recently in the parables of Jesus, didn't we? Jesus says the parable of, of, of the treasure says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's been hidden in a field. Somebody stumbles across this treasure, and what do they do when they discover this treasure? They sell it all to buy the field. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl merchant who's been collecting this amazing pearl collection, and when they find this pearl of greatest price, they sell it all, they forfeit their whole pearl collection in order to buy this one pearl. Our treasure is not in the hand of God, but the face of God. The upright shall behold his face. This is God's promise to his people that ultimately our crisis and our enemies won't have the final word. God will. If you look at verse 3 with me again, this is the answer to the question of verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The answer to this question is found in verse 7. The Lord is righteous. God's character is on display here. He loves righteous deeds. And then this reward right here, the upright shall behold his face. All right, so what? So where do we go from Psalm 11? I want to just mention a couple quick things um, that I think we can take away from Psalm 11 practically. Um, I want, I want, the first thing I want to encourage you to do is this. Um, and I think David challenges me to do this so often. I grew up um, with a, a form of faith that kind of excluded negative emotions or words from my prayers. And I think David teaches us a different way to prayer. And really what I think David encourages us to do is fight for honesty and truth in your prayer life. Fight for honesty and truth in your prayer life. I would typically try to sterilize my prayers and not express anything that was hard, ask any real questions of God. And I think David teaches us a better way. It's a challenge for us in prayer to hold both to honesty as we come to God, coming to him from where, where we really are. The real you meets with the real God. But I think David holds that tension really well. He expresses both of these. He fights for honesty and truth in his life. I think verses 1 through 3 um, highlight the honesty of the situation. David wasn't holding back. But if we all we have are verses 1 through 3, we will miss verses 4 through 7. Our prayers would be incomplete. But this is also the truth. Verses 4 through 7 that only highlights the truths of God would also be incomplete without verses 1 through 3. Does that make any sense? We have honesty and truth held together in tandem. We need both. We need to learn to bring our whole selves before God, which include our harder emotions. It bring, we bring our painful questions to God. We say, God, where are you? Where are you? Jesus himself on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're encouraged to look over our darker emotions, but David doesn't give us that out. And one, like, little potentially helpful little exercise, uh, it might be to write out your own song, right? Um, there's an author, Pete Scazzaro. He wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, a bunch of other ones. He, he has this concept called exploring the iceberg. Kind of all of us are kind of icebergs. There's so much more going on underneath the surface in our lives, if we're honest. 
Um, and he asked these four questions, and it's very simple. He asked these four questions that he, he encourages you to journal about. What are you angry about? What are you sad about? What are you anxious about? And what are you glad about? So four questions. Angry, what are you angry about from the past or the present maybe? What are you sad about? It might be a small or a big loss. It might be a disappointment. It might, it might be a choice that was made. Thirdly, what are you anxious about? Are you anxious about your money? Are you anxious about your future, your family, your health, your job? What are you glad about? Are you glad about a relationship? Are you glad about an opportunity? Talk to God about what you're glad about. And as you write those things out, then once you're done with those things, bring those things before God and just talk to Jesus about those things. And I think that's partially what, what David is encouraging us to do. Be honest with him, but also be truthful. Let these truths of God, let the, the holiness of God, let the transcendence of God, let the nearness of God be brought before your eyes as well as your honesty. Does that make sense? Uh, secondly, instead of surrounding yourselves with friends that encourage you to run to your same mountains of old, find friends that encourage you to fight for faith. Find, find, find friends who urge you to faith instead of flight. And this is done in community. It's really hard alone. The temptation to panic or to flight is so easy to give into. And there's a discipline in this fight for faith and trust and finding a refuge in God and not all the le other lesser refuges. And just even imagine for a moment if we could all be a community of people together whose advice and exhortation to one another is to find true refuge in God, flying to Jesus' throne instead of our mountains of distraction and entertainment. Does that sound all right? All right, let's pray together. Jesus, we, we thank you that in a very real way, you could have run when you were tempted to walk away and you stuck it out. And you, Jesus, you held strong to the end. And I pray that we would be a people um, who, who fly to you, that we fly to this reality that you are in your holy temple, you are in your holy palace, and your throne is in heaven. Your eyes see all things and you reward us with your face. And so I pray just for that gift, that reminder today that you are reigning over all things, that no matter what is being shot at us today, you rule God. You reign. Not only that, you see us. I pray that each person right now, that you would speak to them. You say, I see you, child. I see the situation that you're in and you don't have anger for them. You have compassion for them. The compassionate God has compassion for you today. And God, we want to know that compassion. We want to walk aware of that. And then finally, God, we want to be a people who ultimately look to you over and over again because we want to see your face. We love your face. We want to see you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.